Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Keith W. Carter, an assistant professor at Valparaiso University. His book, Union Made, Working People and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago, published by Oxford University Press, is a topic of this show. Carter offers a bold interpretation of the origins of the American social gospel by highlighting the role of labor in both articulating key ideas and activism. He begins in Antebellum, Chicago, with its modest frontier churches in which different classes came together as equals. The prosperity of the post-Civil War era redefined the relationship between labor, capital, and the churches, bringing new class divisions. Opulent churches of the well-to-do and highly compensated clergy were increasingly compromised in their appeals to the captains of industry. Viewing poverty as a personal failing, while success a measure of divine approval to working-class resentment, it was into this gilded age that labor activists, with no support from leading seminaries or pulpits, advocated for themselves with appeals to the Bible and theological innovation. The battle was between competing interpretations of Christianity in which a radical Jesus stood with the poor. Trade unionists advocated for the eight-hour day, Sunday rest, just wages, and the abolishing of church pew rentals. Labor criticism, strikes, and demonstrations brought anxiety to church leadership who were losing the loyalty of wage earners they had long enjoyed. They attempted a strategy to divide the labor movement by denouncing socialists and communists and approving of sensible wage earners. Continued pressure from below instigated reluctant middle-class church leaders to address the labor question in what became known as the social gospel. Carter has provided a corrective to how we think about the origins of the social gospel away from middle-class progressive initiative to labor as advocates of their own interest. Here is my conversation with Heath W. Carter. Now let me introduce you to the author, Heath Carter. Heath, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book is a bold and much-needed corrective to the history of the social gospel. Uh, but before we get into the book, I have so many questions I want to ask you. Tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Union Made. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I... Uh... Let's see. In terms of myself, I, I, I'm a professor at Valparaiso University here in, in Northwest Indiana. This is my uh, first position out of graduate school. I wrote this this book, uh, started as a dissertation at the University of Notre Dame. Um, and I, I kind of stumbled onto the topic pretty early in my graduate school career. I was um, actually in a master's program and writing a, a course paper and stumbled across this little blurb in a, in a fundamentalist magazine. And it was, it was talking about how pastors in the state of Wisconsin had tried to form a union and the state of Wisconsin had quashed this effort. And I thought, Oh, here they come. They're going to really uh, get after the state for, for opposing this union. But it, it, the, the editor of that magazine actually went on to say, you know, and it served them right because they were doing the devil's work. Um, and so I was just really intrigued by that. I was like, wow, you know, really strong. And here you've got ministers trying to unionize. Where is this anti-union sentiment coming from? And so my first semester at Notre Dame, I, uh, 
living in Chicago at that point and thought, well, you know, I'm going to look at and, and just see what were the religious dynamics surrounding the Pullman strike, this kind of iconic strike on the, you know, uh, south side of Chicago in the in the very end of the 19th century. And sure enough, I mean, I started digging in and found just so many interesting storylines. You know, you've got the uh, one minister who's really um, comes out very strongly against the strike in Pullman, another minister who becomes kind of the worker's hero. And then all the while, lots of disruptions at churches across the uh, sort of Chicago metropolitan area. This strike turned these churches into what I call theaters of class conflict. So uh, by the time I finished writing that seminar paper, I was like, there's a story uh, to be told here. Well, there's definitely a story there. Yeah. And you start, you locate your story in Chicago, and mm-hmm. you start before the Civil War, yeah. when Chicago was really just sort of a pioneer town. Yeah. Um, and the and you describe sort of the class relations there between labor, capital, the mm-hmm. churches, what was what the churches were like, and yeah. you set that up, of course, to give us the contrast afterwards. But so t- talk to, talk about Chicago and what the churches. And the class relations were mm-hmm. before the Civil War. Yeah. I say this is part of a bigger story. I mean, you know, there's this uh, classic book on the post-revolution period, the Democratiz- Nathan Hatch's The Democratization of American Christianity, where he really looks at, and, and other people have done this too, you know, looked at how, you know, one of the reasons why um, Christianity, you know, particularly evangelical Protestantism, kind of booms in the early 19th century is it becomes identified with kind of the common person and common people are in many cases driving its, its rise. And that's what we see in Chicago in the early, in the early days of the city of Chicago in the 1830s, when the city um, is incorporated and, and, you know, it's really kind of emerges uh, slowly at first, but then very quickly booms out of the swamp, you know, just kind of uh, comes out in this, uh, sprawling industrial metropolis. I mean, in those first few decades when Chicago is still a kind of a small town, you know, even the fanciest people are meeting in these, uh, you know, simple wood frame buildings, Protestant, Catholic, uh, everybody's, and, and there's this kind of air of simplicity that maybe is the type of thing you think of, um, when you associate people associate with the frontier. Um, you know, the Episcopalians have, uh, a fancy organ and that's kind of a big deal. And they actually, and a fancy altar and they dismantle the altar during uh, one of the financial downturns prior to the civil war, because it was perceived as being too ostentatious. Um, so there is this kind of uh, air of simplicity associated with religious life in the, in the city, in the pre civil war decades. And I, I didn't find much evidence of, um, class conflict within the churches during those decades, there seemed to be a kind of kind of peace, you know, occasional uh, flare-ups here and there. But for the most part, when the archbishop builds a, a very princely residence, they call it, uh, some local Catholics get a little upset about that. But for the most part, um, you know, there's there's a kind of peace within the, the churches across class lines prior to the Civil so War. So in these, in these churches, you have an integration between a commercial class Farmers, uh, small business people, you also have wage earners, laborers, mm-hmm. all kinds of people all sitting in the, in the same church. Mm-hmm. 
And, yeah. I, and what yeah. you described there is yeah. sort of astounding because I don't, it's been probably that since then that we have not yeah. seen that happen again because our churches yeah. are very segregated, class right. segregation. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's characteristic of kind of, uh, the early decades of the industrial era too, you know, I mean, the, the prior to industrialization and the rise of kind of mass wage labor, there were more integrated neighborhoods and uh, cities were not so clearly stratified. I mean, that the kind of, um, you know, hardening of those lines really happens when you get the rise of kind of a mass wage labor force. So let's talk about what happens after the Civil War. There's just a boom of industry and wealth is accumulated. And yeah. this has a, a very concrete impact on the how the, the cosmetic look of how these churches look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah as, as Chicago becomes um, one of the kind of centers of an emerging global capitalist order, um, a center of great, you know, wealth and wealth generation, I mean, it's just remarkable to see, you know, in the, in the years just prior to the Civil War, you start to see this massive buildings. Part of what I was able to show um, in that first chapter of the book is, you know, you get these churches that were meeting in, you know, uh, kind of ramshackle wood buildings. All of a sudden are building these gorgeous uh, Gothic kind of towering spires and steeples and, um, you know, spending lots of money on organs and paneling and all the like. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, sure. You don't, you don't, you don't address this, but is it because there was so much wealth people were able to travel and maybe they went to Europe and they saw the cathedrals and they yeah. come back and they said, wait a minute, they have cathedrals. We should have cathedrals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even by that point, there were, there were, there were obviously, um, more elegant, structures back in Boston and New York and the like. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly a city like Chicago in the 19th century is striving to catch up and exceed the standards and uh, civility that you would find in kind of more well-established eastern seaboard cities. So I think that that's definitely a piece of it. And that goes with another piece of it, which is, you know, in addition to building these, you know, kind of ornate sanctuaries, Churches also, Chicago becomes fully integrated into a, an emerging national market for ministers. And that's the other piece. And this is really a Protestant piece of the story is that, you know, um, churches, as they become better established in the industrializing city, are looking as part of their prestige, their cachet. They want to lure um, big name ministers away from prestigious pulpits in other in other places. And so in order to do that, they participate in this kind of market for um, more nationally renowned people. And so they start paying massive salaries. So whereas uh, ministers in the 1830s and 40s are making roughly what a wage earner makes by the 1850s, 60s, 70s, they're making often 10 or 15 times what uh, an ordinary laborer may have made. Right. So your first chapter, you talk uh, that the title of your first chapter is "The Labor is Worthy of His Hire," which yeah. is right from from Scripture. And you've got right. uh, ministers before the Civil War are having to advocate for themselves because right. some of right. them are living in near starvation right. wages. Right. right. That's and, right. And and this is the same argument that you're going to see. We're going to see later when, when the labor people begin to advocate for themselves. They're using these yeah. sorts of the same sort of argument that the ministers had used before. Right. That's right. That's right. That's now what's exactly. ha- what happens to the, the relationship between 
uh, the classes during the, the Gilded Age, this industrial mm-hmm. boom, yeah. uh, broadly, which has a huge impact, of course, on how the churches are structured and what happens within the churches. Can you yeah. talk about the development of labor uh, sure. as a distinct sort of movement? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, effectively after the Civil War, um, you know, Americans think that they've resolved this, um, mon- you know, monumental issue of, of slavery and only to find themselves almost immediately engulfed in a new um, labor related issue, namely the rise of wage labor and the labor movement. Um, we know that the Civil War itself was a very significant stimulus to industrial development. The rise of um, wage labor as the primary way of structuring relationships between employers and employed. And within a decade of the Civil War across the country, um, you have an increasingly restive industrial working class. Um, people, especially uh, in, in cities, emerging, you know, cities are emerging in, in a new way across the, the north and Cities become um, hubs for often um, fairly, you know, migratory labor. You know, people are not necessarily – there's so many ways in which these industrial cities are new, um, one of which is that, you know, they aren't very stable. And you've got people coming through and, and looking for work and then uh, moving along. But um, by the 1870s, certainly, um, it's very clear that the old system where, you know, the old Whig vision of a nation of small entrepreneurs and artisans is really, is really gone. And we've, um, you know, moved into a new corporate era in which, um, you know, you, there's not necessarily an obvious way to work your way up. And as that, as that becomes clear to, um, wage earners, they organize and start to become much more aggressive in their, in their tactics. And, and so that period from, you know, the 1870 to 1900, at least, and, and depending on, you know, in Colorado, it's even the, in, well into the first decades of the 20th century, uh, characterized by very significant industrial strife. You know, the, this kind of famous ongoing battle between capital and labor that's here in the United States. It's also in Europe. It's a kind of transnational phenomenon. So this, uh, this sort of environment that's happening outside the churches very quickly in your book uh, begins to infest the church yeah. piece yeah. among the, cl- yeah. the classes are beginning. And, and there was, you're talking about things like, okay, you've got these palatial churches that where people are, are renting their pews, right. which naturally pushes out people who cannot afford uh, right. to pay uh, to sit in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got also people who are working and going to church with the people who are their their bosses, the management. That's right. Maybe abusing them during the week, but on Sunday morning they're in the same church. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so all those things that those changes in the antebellum period, wager, you know, the 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 fancy buildings, the high salaries that didn't seem to bother working people all that much in the years prior to the Civil War. Well, after the Civil War, when Chicago's labor movement really picks up steam, um, those things start to be seen in, in a new light. And and I, I argue that, you know, it's really 
this this happens very early, and it, it happens um, really right at the beginning. I mean, Chicago's labor movement gets going in earnest right at the tail end of the Civil War. The first major kind of battle is in 1867 when the state legislature, uh, in response to a several-year-long campaign by workers for the eight-hour day, passes law, uh, a law instituting the eight-hour day, but... The law has a lot of loopholes. Employers basically vow to find their way through those loopholes and ensure that they can expect the same amount of work for the same amount of pay. And so on May 1st, there's a, a, a general strike. And it's, it's what I found is that, you know, many people, especially leading leaders of the, of the trade union movement in the city at that point, really earnestly believed that Christian ministers would rally to their side. Um, and it was the experience of betrayal that really turned things in a new direction and, and, you know, effectively no minister rallies to labor's side in that 1867 general strike situation. And from that point on, you'll have leaders of the working classes basically saying, um, you know, they, 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 they turn on the churches and say, look, these churches have, have, are morally bankrupt. They've, um, they're, they're in one way or another, uh, so tied to their wealthy benefactors. And that's where the big buildings and the salaries become an issue that they aren't at liberty to be faithful. And that's really the claim that these workers are going to make. So, yeah, you're talking, you talk about many things that these, uh, Labor advocates wanted besides the eight-hour day. They were also looking for Sunday rest, just right. wages, the abolition of church pew rentals. Right, right. Probably a lot more that I'm not even mentioning here. Mm. And but and you when you talk about them turning against the churches or against the ministers, you make it very clear in your book that they're not turning against Christianity as they right. understand it. Right. That's they're, right. They're turning against what they see as a hypocrisy and a mm-hmm. basically the church is not living up to what they believe Christianity is about. So what is there's two Christianities going on here. Right, right, right. Or even more. Right. right that's they, exactly right. Yeah, they, and I think that's one of the central um, insights of the of the research that I did for the book. And one of the central arguments of the book really is that um these working people who are the main characters in my story, they are, they're very alienated on the one hand from the institutions of the church and the leaders of the institutional church, but they're on the other hand deeply invested in the meaning of Christianity. They consider themselves in many cases, not in every case, but in many cases, they consider themselves to be devout Christians. Um, they're not trained theologically. They haven't attended seminary, but they have profoundly theological intuitions and they are throughout the Gilded Age uh, asserting an alternative theological vision and backing that uh, vision up with their feet and, and uh, attending churches that they see as faithful and leaving churches that they see as unfaithful um, and trying to, I argue, shape and uh, give shape to kind of American church life and American Christian. They have a stake in it. They're invested in it and they want to see what they believe is the kind of correct theological vision through. Um, so what is, in order to kind of call the church back. Let's get back to the, uh, the theology here, because that's yeah. sort of my area of interest. Yeah. Sure. Uh, how did, 
what were the theological arguments that were being used by the ministers in, uh, in the churches yeah. against labor organizing? What is what is the problem with labor organizing theologically for them? What is the, What are they quoting? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they have a lot of different kinds of arguments that they would make. Um, one, for example, would be that um, Jesus was not concerned with inequality in the ways that these um, these workers say that Jesus was, you know, Jesus didn't start the labor movement. Jesus didn't, uh, you know, they would say, look, if this, if this was really such a, uh, such an issue, why didn't Jesus, you know, uh, start the kind of movement that you're kind of trying to start right now? That would be one thing that they would say they, they would, um, you know, many of these ministers are very firmly in the camp that says that, you know, the, the, the labor movement has a kind of conflictual vision of society that, you know, labor and capital are somehow intrinsically in conflict. And these ministers want to dispute that. And they want to say that, in fact, there's a, we have a harmonious view of society. Um, in fact, capital is labor. There's no distinction. And, um, by insinuating this distinction, Labor is um, articulating a view of human social relationships that doesn't comport with a kind of Christian idea of neighbor love or something like that. That would be a more sophisticated kind of theological argument. They also tended to, it seemed to like they evoked freedom a lot. Yeah. You know, Christian yeah. freedom, yeah. equating Christian freedom with yeah. political, so economic freedom. Yeah. Right. The freedom of contract. That's that's another. Thank you for bringing that up. That's another sort of very central piece is this idea that and this I mean, this is Amy Drew Stanley's book from Bondage to Contract. She really nails this home. And I found this throughout the research for this book is that, you know, this whole idea that freedom is the ability to have a contract that, you know, no matter what the terms of that contract may be, that if by virtue of just having a contract, by being paid a wage, you are free. Um, this is something that is very much in the air that church, you know, theologically speaking, it's just sort of an axiomatic for so many church leaders. And so that's another major issue that they have with labor is that labor is going to violate what they see as this kind of divinely ordained um, freedom of, of association, freedom of contract. And also they're also talking about, I noticed uh, the assumption of, the right to private property. Yeah. And tied to that was this idea, of course, that you talk about is that if they were affluent and they were sitting in the churches, one of the arguments was that it pays to go to church because if you Mm -hmm. go to church, then you're going to, God's going to show favor on you and you're going to be, you're going to prosper. There was assumption that if you worked hard enough, Mm -hmm. you would do well. So you just tell labor, just work harder. Right. Right. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, it's not just a it's not just a spiritual blessing either. It's not just the idea that, you know, if you work hard, God will bless you. But it's also and this is actually articulated very uh, forthrightly by church leaders. You know, one of them, uh, I speak about this fellow in chapter three, Goodwin, um, he articulates this very idea. It pays to go to church. And he says, look, if you rent a pew in church, if there's a job opening, he says, you know, and and and. 
there's two candidates, and one is known to rent a pew in church and to faithfully attend, and the other does not, the, the job will go to the, to the pew renter. So he, he's got this whole idea of kind of, and, and it's true, in fact, that there is a kind of social capital available to people, and that's, this is part of what workers are disputing right and left, is this idea that somehow by paying into this pew rent system, you uh, acquire a kind of social capital that then benefits you in the market. But the, the workers are going to say, this is a corruption. This is not, this is, this is a wholesale introduction of kind of market norms and reasons and ways of being into churches that are supposed to be operating in accordance with a different logic. Right. Because you can always also say, um, another thing I just noted was that you can have, if, if capital has a right to organize, you know, through corporate form, mm. why does labor not have a right to organize? It's very difficult, yeah. of course, for a, a, one little wage earner to negotiate right. with an employer. Because right. the employer has a lot more power. Right. So the right. idea that, well, you can just quit your job right. and go get another job right. is, right. is a non-starter. Yeah. Yeah, and there's that, that those kinds of analyses of power, you don't see those as much in ministers' rhetoric or analysis of the industrial crises of the 19th century. I mean, you don't – for them, um, business owners are just people. They're individuals, and they are to be held to the same kinds of moral standards as an individual of any station or, or status would be held. And so it's not about – again, they don't, they don't want to admit in most cases – the idea of a kind of conflictual relationship between employer and employed. They want to say that this is just a, you know, they, they assume the best of employers, that they're always going to do the best they can. And at the end of the day, it's their right as an individual. They are free to run their business as they'd like. Um, the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind is, you know, something Jane Adams points out in her essay about, the Pullman strike, uh, where she compares Pullman to Lear. And one of the things, you know, she sees this whole strike in 1894 as a kind of tragedy. And part of the tragedy of it is that Pullman has been in, in rooms and in banquet halls where he's only hearing one voice and, and, and isn't, you know, the, the voices of the people are not making their way to his ears. And I think that's true with, in many cases with the, the minister, in late 19th century Chicago that, you know, as these churches do become more stratified, um, it becomes very difficult for many Protestant ministers in particular to see the working classes as anything other than a threat. And that does have a lot to do with what's going on in Europe. And it has a lot to do with 1871, the Paris Commune, which Marx hails as a kind of uh, harbinger of the, rev the coming revolution. Well, in Chicago and, and around the United States, Ministers and their elite patrons are watching what's going on in Paris with horror and 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 very deeply concerned about that Marx might actually be right that the revolution may be um, underway and and from that point on there's a kind of serious almost hysteria that that's involved in in the ways that many Protestant ministers talk about labor and about working people. These are not the, you know, they're, they're not good people. It's the mob. And that, I mean, we talk about this in the book, you know, that the idea that, you know, and somehow the mob is threatening to take over the city. 
What's interesting is that they assume the best of the industrial class, but right. the worst of the right. labor people. Now, right. what happens right. is, of course, in your book, as the labor movement is gaining strength, one yep. of the strategies that the churches begin to use is sort of this divide the labor movement. Yep. Talk about the sensible, responsible mm-hmm. laborer mm-hmm. and the anarchist, communist, socialist, right. trying to kind of split that. If they yeah. can't have the whole labor movement, maybe they can call out what the sensible ones. Right. That's right. Yeah, they are really, you know, for the Protestant churches, they are really deeply invested in, you know, from the very beginning, even, you know, and throughout, they, they never are going to say that labor itself is bad. It's, it's organized labor. It's labor that wants to use these coercive tactics. Um, they're always going to have kind of this rhetoric of the dignity, about the dignity of labor, but it, 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 it stops well short of any kind of endorsement of actual um, labor tactics, labor organizing. All of that is problematic. And, you know, to be fair, I mean, there are those kinds of divisions, you know, dividing between the respectable labor and the the mob. Working people are a part of that story as well. I mean, they're making those same kinds of distinctions. One of my main characters, this fellow Andrew Cameron, he, um, you know, he's deeply concerned about socialism and he's deeply concerned about, you know, in 1867 when the, the general strike for the eight hour day happens and, you know, an organized kind of respectable demonstration turns in subsequent days into street protests and vandalism and, and, uh, and the like, he, he, he's not comfortable with that. And, um, so there is a, a kind of division even within labor itself between those who, you know, Cameron thinks strikes are sometimes important. They're necessary, but he's, he's very concerned about disorder. He's very concerned about state socialism. So there are, you know, complicated ways. This is a complicated issue, right? Um, you know, labor itself is fractured and, and not able to come together, which is part of, you know, I think if you read the whole story of labor history, one of the reasons why the American labor movement has, has struggled to kind of gain the kind of ground that labor, uh, successfully gains in parts of Europe is, is fracturing. And, and some of it has to do with ethnicity and race and, and some of it's ideological, social, socialism versus, you know, people who are less comfortable with the radical options. So what are some of the um, tactics now when when the church and the churches begin to sort of try to divide or the ministers try to divide the sensible labor people, the conservative labor people from the socialist labor people? Yeah. What is uh, let's talk about some of the tactics of of labor themselves. Mm -hmm. What kinds of um, biblical references are they appealing to? What moral arguments are they making? Mm-hmm. And then also then what action? Because they don't just talk. They're not just trying to persuade. They actually, you, mm-hmm. they do things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of the, you know, labor is, is making a, a, a series of, of different kinds of arguments. I mean, I think at the, at the, at the base of it is this idea that, um, the laborer is, 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 uh, worthy of his hire. And, and this idea that, you know, 
the labor movement, especially the early labor movement, is very much infused with this kind of uh, what Sean Wilentz has called an artisan republicanism, this idea that the dignity of the common man, um, you know, a, 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 it's got a deep kind of wellspring out of the American Revolution. Um, so they, they're going to combine that. And, and so for many working people, Jesus is going to become a central figure because he's a carpenter. He's a working man. And so they see him as, you know, when we, when we talk about being a Christian and following Jesus means to follow this, uh, this, this working person. And so they want to ask, well, why, if, if Christianity is centered around a, a carpenter, why is it that my minister is always siding with the boss? Um, so they're making, they're making those kinds of arguments. I mean, with respect to kind of the broader labor movement itself, you know, they're just fundamentally objecting to a society in which the distribution of wealth is, um, seemingly so kind of out of proportion. Um, and they, they're going to cite, you know, there's a very interesting exchange, for example, between John Farwell, who's, uh, you know, friends with Marshall Field, kind of a captain of industry, a retail magnate in Chicago, and one of the Knights of Labor in the 1880s. And uh, Farwell basically says, you know, he wishes that the Knights of Labor would attend to the Gospels and become a, a true student of the Gospels and true followers of, of Christ. And this, this Knight of Labor responds in uh, a labor paper to Farwell directly, and they get into a very interesting exchange. But he basically says, you know, Farwell uh, does not follow Christ, and every day he he kind of moves further away from him because it's very clear in the New Testament that uh, it's harder for a wealthy man to uh, enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and yet Farwell is trying to acquire more and more wealth with every passing day. So, I mean, they, they, they have a series of, they just have a different vision of kind of the implications of Christianity for society um, with respect to these issues of wealth. One thing so far, uh, you've talked a, a lot about, we've talked about this Christianity or these churches sort of monolithic, but there is a Protestant Catholic uh, divide mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Within mm-hmm. the labor movement and also within yeah. the how the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches respond to labor. Yeah. It's yeah. not quite the same. The outcome yeah. seems to be the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest difference in the 19th century is that, you know, the Protestant elite in Chicago and other cities, there's such a deep vein of nativism in their response to labor. And, and of course, the working class in Chicago and many other northern cities is increasingly foreign born in the decades after the Civil War. And that ethnicity piece is just so obviously significant in, in kind of coloring the Protestant response. And you, and you hear it time and again, you know, that these are the dangerous classes, the foreigners who are taking over our society. They're un-American. Those kinds of claims are being made. You don't hear that kind of rhetoric out of the Catholic Church. Is it um, because most of these um, immigrants, new immigrants were Catholic? Catholic? Right, exactly. So, so the Catholic Church, obviously, in this period, is, an, an, is largely an immigrant church. And, and so you don't get the same kind of nativism. The rhetoric in, on, on the Catholic side of things tends to be friendlier to labor and even sometimes to um, 
organized labor and, and to strikes and the like, you know, that you'll, you'll see a little bit more understanding, but you know, in the 19th century in Chicago, I don't see much evidence of the Catholic church being kind of out in front. You don't see priests and bishops who are, you know, leading or joining labor protests. Um, it's really, that really starts to happen much more in the 20th century. In the 19th century, the Catholic church is still trying to find its way in a society that largely doesn't accept it, that discriminates against it, that sees it as an un-American church. So Catholic leaders are very concerned about being associated with a labor movement that many uh, in the American elite are also calling un-American. Um, so they're, they're nervous about that. And they're also nervous about how um, in Chicago and other places, the relationships between labor and, and radical movements are a little too close for Catholic, the Catholic Church's comfort. And, uh, and for them, that's a real sticking point. They're, you know, rhetorically pro-labor, but very anti-socialist. Um, and they're worried that the labor unions could be a gateway into socialism. So even as in the, in the Protestant era, uh, arena, you've got ministers who are, uh, mostly critiquing, but there are ministers who are also come to champion labor. Right. Uh, within the Catholic, uh, community, you're really looking at lay people who are actually the leaders. Yeah. Yeah. With, with the institutional church sort of just holding back and kind of like, we're behind you, but we're way behind you. Like, yeah. They can't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you do start to get some priests, um, you know, that we have some evidence of, of, of uh, the occasional priest in a, in a Catholic parish who will um, offer material support, let a, let a local union meet in its, in its fellowship hall, stuff like that. And, and by the first decade of the 20th century, you know, there's a major strike in the um, back of the yards neighborhood, the stockyards district. And that's the first time that I found evidence of very significant local priest support for a strike where, you know, across the, you know, the yards has got divided basically into uh, all of these different ethnic parishes and not every parish, but many of those priests come out and support the, the workers in, in 1905, uh, 1904, which is a kind of significant moment and a, an interesting foreshadowing of what's to come, which is during the 1930s, we know, um, you know, the Catholic Church is going to become a really important ally of uh, burgeoning labor movement. Uh, chapter five you, is entitled The Divorce Between Labor and the Church. Mm-hmm. And divorce, yeah. is a, that sounds pretty permanent. It sounds right. pretty final. Right. Uh, it sounds like the end of a relationship that they've right. been trying to negotiate here for decades. Right. Uh, talk about that. And, and yeah. how did that break common what do you mean by a divorce or yeah what does yeah. it look like right well that was the language that william stead used stead was a british uh kind of journalist and reformer who came to chicago in 1893 and when he got there was just very deeply struck by what he called the divorce between labor and the church you know in in england and in other parts of europe um there had been significant churchly support for working people's movements. Um, and so when he got to Chicago and um, started meeting with local labor leaders and realized how deeply alienated and, and frustrated they were with the institutional churches, you know, he, 
he he says, well, what are we going to do? There's 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 been a kind of, in his view, I think, and in, in the view of many people, this is a kind of catastrophic occurrence, you know, the, the, this, this divorce, because in, in Stead's view and in the view of, of many others, you know, both labor and the churches would benefit from, um, being in a mutually supportive relationship. And so he kind of makes this one of his things. He's only in Chicago for about a year, but he founds this civic federation that's in part designed to try to bring labor and the churches back together. They're, they're never is, of course, an actual divorce in the sense of some kind of final split between working people and the churches. But, I mean, the language is significant because, I mean, part of the, one of the big arguments of the book is that working people's theological, sort of dissenting theological outlook gains new traction at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century because there is a perception of a divorce uh, or an impending divorce um, and, and that perception is the source of just an incredible amount of anxiety across the industrializing world. People, min Protestant ministers in particular, are holding conferences and meetings and getting together and talking about what they call the working man's alienation from the church. And, and so that, that worry that, you know, we're losing working people, we're losing the poor, and with that, we're going to lose our cultural influence becomes a significant leverage point that's going to really aid working people in their quest to change the church's mind about organized labor. But they're also they're voting with their feet uh, by leaving yeah. a lot of churches where the ministers are very, you know, anti-labor. Yeah. Are, there are ministers, apparently, it seemed to me like there were ministers who were trying to start new churches, new congregations yeah. with yeah. mostly labor wage earners yeah. as their congregation and support right. them. Uh, right. How much of that was going on? Yeah. Well, part of what's that's very interesting is that, you know, by the by the turn of the century, you know, as you get to the 1890s, um, you get a number in Chicago of younger ministers who are recently graduated from seminary and they are part of this track. They're like I, I referred to earlier, this kind of. Uh, minister's uh, career trajectory where you start off in kind of an undesirable parish and then you get moved to uh, something a little more desirable. Then maybe you get to big church in Cincinnati, um, you know, first Methodist in Cincinnati, and that can become your launching pad to uh, first Methodist in New York or Chicago or Boston. Um, a lot of these ministers get out of seminary and they're put in these what are considered undesirable churches and uh, they're undesirable because they're in poor neighborhoods. You're not going to make a lot of money and, you know, you're going to be dealing, you know, probably living in, in a place that, you know, a part of the city that um, many of the more elite, well, better established ministers wouldn't dare set foot in. Um, and what happens, and I think this is very significant, you know, is that these young ministers connect with the people in their churches and start to hear their stories and they start to understand the kinds of conditions that they're dealing with and they are converted to seeing the side of the other side, basically. They see kind of the, the, the truth in what these working people have been talking about. And so in the Pullman strike, for example, it's it, none of the, the city's best established, most eloquent, best known, most thoughtful um, by kind of the standards of high society ministers. None of them take the side of the strikers, but in these small neighborhood churches, some, young ministers in their twenties do. 
And those ministers are going to become surprisingly influential in the decade that follows because all of a sudden, as, as this perception of a divorce or a crisis of working class attrition erupts across the industrializing world, the churches are left looking for, well, who can be the mediator? Who can bring us back into touch with the ordinary people that we're losing track of? We're losing our foothold among. And it's these ministers who are going to be the ones who are able to do it. And, and so they're able to leverage their relationships with working people to gain influence within their denominations and to say, look, you want these working people back? Well, I know them. I know what their experience is like. I hear their voices. This is what they want. And they go back to the denominational meeting and say, this is what we want. If you want, if you want working people back in the pews, this is what we have to do. That's the process by which the social gospel comes to take root in the churches themselves, much more so than this older story of kind of the well-intentioned middle-class ministers who wake up one day and realize the plight of labor. It's, it's through a, a kind of, church political process whereby working people have been advocating they're they're they they convince some well-intentioned well-meaning middle-class ministers who don't have a lot of influence but gain that influence and go to battle within denominational structures to try to change the denomination's attitude toward a a, a movement that that most denominations had long seen as quite menacing and this is the this is the fresh uh sweet spot of your book yeah this yeah. is this is the whole thrust of your book that yeah. the social you're really giving us a new narrative for the inception of the social gospel yeah. it wasn't just middle class ministers who went out and you know experience saw some poverty and decided oh we need to do something but yeah. it's a much more uh uh m- there's a lot of more mutuality there yeah yeah. And I would argue that, you know, it's, it's even that the, the, in, the initiative really comes from working people who have the theological intuitions that, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch is going to systematize in the first two decades of the 20th century. They're saying a lot of these things in the, in the decades right after the Civil War. They're also very much a part of creating the, the, the social context you know, that by the 18, you know, starting in the 1860s in Chicago and, and, and elsewhere, their very vocal criticisms of the institutional church set the, the, the context within which by a century and a generation later, so many church leaders become um, caught up in this perceived at the very least crisis of working class attrition. So it's really that working people have these theological ideas. They're, um, activism creates a perception on the on on the part of many institutional church leaders of a crisis, and then they're able to follow through and and tell these church leaders, "Look, if you want us back, this is what you have to do." Right, You've and you, basically, you're your you're talking about these uh, people who are theologically trained are able to pick up uh, on the concerns of labor and their right. theology, their informal theology. And right. in a way, sort of formalize that theology and right. give it legitimacy within the institution. Yeah, and it's and it's and, and and even they, they have an audience. They are able to get a hearing because not because all of a sudden 
middle class people, middle class Christians around the country are suddenly deeply concerned about the plight of the working person. But because they are deeply concerned that the churches are losing the masses. And, you know, so Rauschenbusch and the like have a hearing. In fact, Harry Ward, I mean, this is very telling. Harry Ward was a very influential. Um, he's one of these young ministers who, who gets his start in the Stockyards District in Chicago, is converted to see the virtues of organized labor through his experience there. Goes on to in, 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 in denominational leadership. He founds the or helps to found the Methodist Federation for Social Service, which is one of the kind of early appendages of the social gospel. He's going to be very central in the in the authoring of the Social Creed, which is um, a Methodist document that's then going to be adopted by the Federal Council of Churches, a kind of early statement of social Christianity in 1908. Ward um, is... You know, so at the same time as the Methodist Church is kind of leading the institutional church push for the social gospel, they're embroiled in a decades long strike with their own printers starting in the, you know, about 1902. This strike doesn't end until 1930. Well, for many of those years, Ward is in the middle trying to mediate. And in 1916, I believe, he, he, he decides, I'm going to reach out. He writes a letter. He sends out to the heads of unions across the country. And he basically says, look, I need you to write me back a letter testifying to the ways that our opposition to the printers union, the Methodist church's opposition to the printers union is hurting our outreach and evangelism to the working class because the people denominationals annual meeting will not listen to your arguments about the justice of the matter, but they will listen if they believe that this labor dispute is hurting our outreach and evangelism. And so he takes these letters back. Now it doesn't work. I mean, it's still not enough, but you, you can see the strategy or the process there by which the social gospel comes into the institutional church. It's through this brass tax pragmatic. It's, um, it's very self-differential. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not a, I, I guess what I want to say is that there are people who, um, are integral to the, the rise of the social gospel who are deeply, you know, morally concerned, but that the, the real process by which it, it comes to take some root is a political process. It's, it's bears much more resemblance to kind of how bills get through Congress than it does to a kind of like, genuinely deeply felt moral response to uh, poverty. Okay. So the question is what happened yeah. to the social gospel? What happened to the labor movement? The, you know, the yeah. labor didn't go away. Right. Class right. ratification in churches remained. Yeah. Yeah. What, how did it lose its, its uh, energy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, and this is a great question that obviously uh, t- it takes us beyond the scope of my book, but it, it it's a question that um, I think is right at the heart of a lot of the great work that's been done in the last 10 or so years on the relationship between Christianity and capitalism in the 20th century. And the real question of, you know, of course, where does um, working class conservatism, which is such an important part of our, our modern political life. Um, and, you know, I think it's certainly front and center in the contempt in the current election. I mean, the, the ways in which, um, Working class conservatives find the Trumps and the Cruises, et cetera, appealing. I mean, I think a lot of 
my colleagues, people like uh, Darren Dochuk and Bethany Morton and Kevin Cruz, who have been writing these books, trying to look at, um, and I, I think the, the, the story, the real answer is that this is a very complicated story that doesn't have a sort of single, there's no single answer to your question, but that, you know, at, at a variety of different levels, um, you know, race is a factor and, uh, you know, we know that the South turns on the New Deal when it seems that it's starting to upset the kind of apartheid regime or that the federal government and integrated labor unions might be able to come around. And that's a piece of it. There's a piece of it that has to do with the very significant corporate investment and relationships with leading ministers who are going to articulate a vision of Christian free enterprise that becomes very important during the Cold War and a way of distinguishing the United States from the Soviets. Um, there's there's this whole piece, the rise of, of the prosperity gospel and its ability to appeal to working class and poor people who, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of, theological movement that really uh, runs directly counter to the types of things that the people that are at the center of my book are saying, but has proven to be very persuasive to a lot of contemporary working people. So um, theologically speaking, uh, the kind of you know working class theologies that I've uh, recovered in this book they're not the prevailing working class theologies of our own day. Um, and, and like I said, for many different reasons, I think. Yeah. We didn't think uh, you brought something up in your, what you just said that we didn't really talk about was the race issue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, these labor movements were very segregated. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and that now that you talk about the new deal and what right. came after it kind of sort of right. makes sense. Right. Uh, and then when I'm thinking about today, you know, I'm thinking of terms of mega churches and huge, huge churches today that are basically targeting uh, middle, the middle class. Right. And right. I, right. I, I kind of wonder, have they have the churches sort of abandoned mm. uh, the lower classes? Yeah. Like, you know, question. we can't get them. Right. Let's, let's just go after the middle. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, part of the story is that the middle is disappearing. That's the right. Uh, that's a, that's the irony. Yes. Right. That that is the irony. Right. I mean, the if you look at the the charts and the graphs that the economists are throwing around these days, we we see a shrinking middle class. Um, I don't know that it's it's that um, the churches are not interested in having working people in the pews as much as it is that. Um, well, they are obje- they are they are objects of outreach. Right. Okay. Right. But it's sort of a social outreach. We're going to help you. But right. are they really sort of invited to right. participate fully right. as the right. equal members right. of the church? That's different right. than being an object of char- the church's right. charity. Right. Right. Yeah. I think another piece of this story is that, you know, working people themselves um, don't believe in class the way as a, as a kind of, uh, structuring factor in society that in some sense, you know, part of what these Protestant ministers in the 1870s were arguing is that class doesn't really exist. If you work hard, you will make it. And, you know, and, and in other words, in America, everybody's middle class. Right. Or everybody has the ability to be middle class. Right. And so I think that is a, a significant piece of it. This idea that, um, 
you know, my interests will be best served if I, you know, not by joining a union, but by working hard and I'll make my way. And, you know, and, and I think that belief, um, you know, neoliberalism essentially is, 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 uh, very prevalent in, in working class quarters. So, um, yeah, it is a, it is a very, we are living at a very different moment. I mean, I say at the introduction of the book that, you know, on the one hand, people are calling our time a new gilded age. And in some ways, there's a lot to that in the sense from a purely, if you're looking at the distribution of wealth, um, yeah, it looks a lot like maybe the late 19th century. But there are other features of the Gilded Age that my book is about where there's just this incredibly robust conversation, debate in American society about the morality of capitalism and the, and, and the problem, the moral problem of inequality. That language doesn't fully make sense in our contemporary context to many people. And, and, um, I think that the, the lack of a kind of, the kinds of robust debates leading in many cases to quite, I mean, you know, bombs are being thrown in Chicago, right? And workers are, are battling literally that kind of, um, disagreement. I think it, it could, could be healthy. Yeah, you're talking, <laughs> we, there's no, there's have no, pa- we don't have the passion. Right. Right. It, there's right. no passion. We can, we can talk, we can evoke revolution every day, but right. we're not really willing to do the kinds of things that we would require yeah. uh, a, a revolution, a social revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And I think just the fact that for many people, the market is not a more, it's not subject to moral judgments. It's just what it is. You know, that, that whole idea, you know, and, and this is, uh, um, you know, the, in the age of fracture, uh, you know, this recent book, you know, historian goes through and talks about, Effectively, the ways that um, the whole discipline of economics, uh, you know, changes in the late 20th century and in which, you know, suddenly these assumptions about the market, that the market is somehow not subject to change, not subject to moral critique, those become quite prevalent. And I think I think, you know, those are really those really stymie the kinds of working class organization. If you think that the market just is what it is and we're gonna, we can't right. change it, yeah, then it's, it's, it's a given. It's right. a kind of a na- it's naturalized. You just naturalize right. the market. Yes, right. and right. and basically, if you are not successful, there's something wrong with you. You've done something right. wrong. You're you're not working right. hard enough. You didn't get enough education or whatever it is. Right. Right. Okay. Where do you think, or where, where would you like your book to be useful? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do hope that in the academy it will it will offer a a kind of you know or or further underscore the need for new ways of thinking about and writing about the social gospel and and thinking about much more clearly about its grassroots origins and my I've I've traced here the the working class origins of social Christianity but I really think that uh, the social gospel's roots lie in Communities of working people, communities of middle class women who um, are not the focus of this book, but have been the focus of other good work. Um, people who look at the settlement house movements. These are all uh, effectively kind of reform movements that reflect a disenchantment with the ways that the existing churches are doing business in the late 19th century. And I think together, working people, women, African-Americans who are moving to the northern cities in the first decade, first couple decades of the 20th century, 
their mobilization and activism is, I think, at the heart of the story of the social gospel's rise. So I hope that in the academy it will, uh, you know, be useful to people in that sense. I hope that, you know, it'll also gain a, a broader audience of, of readers who are interested in this question about what is the relationship between Christianity and capitalism? How have people understood it in the past? And I hope that in the book they'll find a really robust and interesting debate. Um, one that doesn't have any answers for our contemporary context, I don't think, but that does offer a kind of alternative vision for a kind of uh, robust disagreement and, um, you know, thoughtful, engaged uh, discourse and and activism around these these central questions in the book. So I hope that it'll stimulate people to, to think, you know, more carefully and to challenge and, and question some of the received notions of our own time. I know as I was doing the research, I found many of the voices of of the people I was writing about to be resonant in our own moment, even if they don't have the answers they're they just, they really grabbed me. Well, Heath, uh, you have been very generous with your time. I have one final question. What are you working on now? Yeah, I am, uh, actually, I so I've got an edited book coming out in March. I co-edited with Chris Cantwell and Janine Giordano Drake, a book called the pew in the picket line, um, that'll kind of, follow up and and on some of the themes of this book, but be even broader. It's a collection of essays that range from roughly the Civil War through the 1960s and look at working people and Christianity, uh, Christianity and the American working class across that whole period. But my, my next book will be a, a new history of the social gospel in American life and trying to take the very interesting um, articles and monographs that have been written in the last generation. I mean, we haven't had a real new, synthetic, big-picture history of the social gospel since the 1950s. And it's it's way overdue. And so I, I'm hoping to kind of take uh, synthesize some of the best insights of the last generation of research and also do some new research myself and, and tell a, a big uh, new story about the role of the social gospel movement in, in, in the United States. Thank you, Heath. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>